Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> Next thing we'll do some mantras and for the, uh, the people suffering from the disease and from the war, so much difficulty and strife in our time. And so may they all be healed, may they all be helped, may everyone be happy everywhere. Uh, we'll do 108 repetitions of Om Shivaya Namaha, Om Shivaya Namaha. You all know Om Namah Shivaya, uh, a dyslexic sage <laughs> channeled this version of it. You know, you know the, the joke about the uh, dyslexic uh, seeker, uh, spiritual seekers up all night wondering if there was a dog? You know? <laughs> Terrible joke, sorry. Um, but um, no, the way we, we chanted out loud, Om Shivaya, Namaha. We're going to begin with uh, the Gajananan, and then we're going to do 108 uh, Om Shivaya Namaha mantras. So just join in. Once you get the hang of it, just join in. We'll start with Gajananan.
Om Shivaya Namaha. 
Welcome, everyone. It's a very good story about grace. I like that. <laughs> so <clears throat> I always like to begin my talks uh, by remembering my guru, Baba Muktananda, who always began his talks by saying in Hindi, Sabko varasanmane kesat pem seyadik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that welcome, to welcome another person with love, was the essence of spirituality. Uh, you can do all kinds of uh, philosophizing and do all kinds of spiritual practices and exercises, but if you don't have love, then it's really meaningless. So in that spirit, I want to welcome everybody. And these programs, the heart of these programs are a possibility that everyone has within them. And that possibility is to know the self, to know a higher consciousness, to know their true self, and to really experience deep wisdom and deep happiness uh, and divine energy. And the hero of that story is each of us. And the greatest help that I came across in my life was uh, by finding a sage who had attained that space, that ultimate space of consciousness. And so these uh, programs every Saturday night are celebrating the great sages, the great sages who've attained the 
self-realization and who show us the way to this path. At this stage of human evolution, most of the world is involved in all kinds of strange and uh, uh, irrelevant uh, uh, methods of uh, murder and uh, insanity. Uh, but a small percentage suddenly awakened to the desire and the need to know a higher truth. And then they discover that there are great beings who have attained that truth. And we can go and learn from those great beings. And that's what happened to me in 1970. Uh, I met uh, a sage, a yogi, an American yogi who'd been to India, studied with a great guru. Uh, I met him at a dinner party. And that evening changed the direction of my life because he told me about his own experience. And I realized that these great beings exist here and now, uh, not just in some ancient or biblical time. And I decided that night that I would have to go and try to meet one in India. And uh, my wife and I then went to his workshops, which he was having. Uh, and during those workshops, he spoke about one sage, not one that he'd met, but one who fascinated me. And he, uh, he gave a technique where one went inside oneself and inquired, who am I? And he kept asking that question, who am I, over and over again. This is the way uh, uh, the person I met, whose name was Ramdas, the American teacher Ramdas. This is the way Ramdas um, described it. He said, you keep asking, who am I, who am I? And you say, well, I'm not this and I'm not that. And finally, when you've eliminated everything, you go through a doorway and you experience the self. I thought, cool. <laughs> I like that. So I immediately rushed out and I bought a book of conversations with Sri Ramana Maharshi, who was the, Sri Ramana Maharshi was the sage that he was teaching, uh, talking about. And he became my first, uh, my first encounter with an Indian guru, with his book. And I read that book, and I read that book, and I made little notes in that book, and I read it until it was falling apart, and I could not understand a word of it. But I felt I was getting somewhere, but not really. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, but uh, that book was very dear to me, and so Ramana remains very dear to me. Let's have a few pictures of him. The sweetness and uh, love and peace is, is palpable in this portrait. Extraordinary person. Next. Here he is giving darshan, uh, sitting in his seat in his ashram in South India. And what else do you have? There he is. Always at ease, always relaxed and full of uh, love. Is that it? <clears throat> now, of course, his story is one of the, the, the great stories of modern mysticism, spirituality, which uh, I, I always tell, at least in a short order, which is that he spontaneously attained self-realization at the age of 16. Out of nowhere, he suddenly awakened. And he tells the story in his own words, so I'm not gonna retell it here, but suddenly he 
he did that process of self-inquiry, and he attained the self, and he was permanently uh, established in that self. And spiritual seekers since then, that was around 1896 that that happened. And spiritual seekers then have all been green with envy, because we know how difficult the spiritual path is and how long it takes. And here's a, a young kid with no spiritual background suddenly attained the goal in a half hour. And um, we think, could I be that lucky? And the answer is no. <laughs> but uh, you know, things like this don't happen just in a vacuum. Clearly, he'd done a lot of work in previous lives. He'd, he'd, uh, he'd merited it, and this is what happened. Anyway, he, at the age of 16, uh, he'd had this attainment. Um, his whole demeanor changed, and he decided that he wanted to leave home, and he was attracted to a particular holy mountain in South India. Arunachala is the name of the mountain. And he went there. He left a little note to his parents, don't worry. Um, I'm about my father's business, and um, <laughs> that was all he said, and off he went. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he wandered to this, uh, to this uh, mountain, and he got there, and he went into samadhi. He uh, collapsed into a state of superconsciousness, and he was basically in a trance for quite a long time, possibly as much as a year or two, um, and he had to be fed. People found him here, God knows what they would have done, put him in a mental asylum. But in India, they saw that he was a young yogi, a holy man. And so they fed him, they took care of him. Um, <clears throat> and uh, gradually, after some time, he came down to normal consciousness and started talking to people. And they asked him questions, and he would answer from his own experience. That one simple experience uh, put him in touch with this higher power, and so he spoke with great authority, although with no scriptural knowledge. But later he came to understand the scriptures from all their questions and so on. Uh, and so Ramana became one of India's greatest sages of the 20th century. Very famous not only in India, but all through the world, and particularly his technique of self-inquiry, the, the who am I technique, which we'll get to. Now, I've always loved Ramana and felt a connection with him, and I've done programs on Ramana for uh, years and years, as long as I can remember. <clears throat> and um, uh, in recent years, I found uh, another book, a book by a woman, a devotee of his, named Suri Nagama. Uh, and this book charmed me completely because most things on Ramana look at him as kind of a mechanical sage who did this one technique, and everybody's trying to figure out what that technique was exactly, because it's hard to gather it. And Ramana himself seemed always frustrated with the way people couldn't understand him. I always felt that frustration in him. Um, but Suri Nagama was a, a very simple woman uh, who'd had a tragic life, she was married at 11, which is normal uh, in that culture at that time. And uh, there was a, 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 an epidemic of smallpox, and her husband died when she was 12. So lifelong widowhood was thrust upon her. 
and she became interested in spirituality. And some years, years later, um, she was by this time close to 40, uh, she, her brother told her about Ramana, Sri Ramana and his ashram, and she burned with desire to go there, and finally she ended up and spent the rest of her life from about age 40 to when she died close to 80 uh, at the ashram, but only 10 years with him till his death. But she's, she was there and uh, she was uneducated and yet she, uh, she learned to uh, read and write and she wrote letters to her brother about what happened in the ashram because he was a devotee too. And these letters later were collected into a book and this book is a wonderful book because it shows Ramana not just as a teaching machine, but as a human being. And she herself has great wisdom and great insight. Though she didn't come from a high class or wasn't educated, still she had that natural understanding. And so her, her stories are charming. So these uh, tonight mostly from, from Suri Nagama's letters, although not entirely, but I'll tell you when it's not. <clears throat> okay, here's one one of her letters. She says, at three o'clock this afternoon, a young man approached Bhagavan, they called Bhagavan, Ramana Maharshi Bhagavan, just as we call Bhagavan Nityananda Bhagavan. <clears throat> so he says, a young man approached Bhagavan and asked, Swami, it is said that Shiva is in Kailas, on the mountain, Vishnu and Vaikuntha, which is the Vaishnava heaven, Brahma is in Satchaloka, the place of truth, uh, while Devendra and several devas are in Devaloka. Is it a fact that they're, they're all there? <laughs> so he's saying that there are all these gods and goddesses, you know, India is filled with gods and goddesses, uh, and they all live in these different planes. Baba would say there's all the siddhas live in siddha loka. Loka is a plane of consciousness, invisible to us, but somewhere up there. And they're all alive there. And he's saying, I've heard all this stuff. Uh, is this true? So Ramana says, oh ho! <laughs> that is what you want to know. But first tell me, is it a fact that you are existent? If you're exist in existence, they too must be existing. If you're not in existence, then they too don't exist. <laughs> now that doesn't make logical sense, does it? <laughs> of course, even if he existed, they could not exist if they didn't exist, but all right. He said, he's driving at something else. Uh, so the devotee said, it is said that some are known as uh, Pitru devatas, the souls of dead ancestors. And that if Shraddha is not performed, it's a ceremony on the anniversary of the death of a, a relative, they will punish the people concerned. Do they really exist separately? Bhagwan, that is just what I've been saying. As long as you have the feeling of ego, that you are the doer, all these beings are in existence. 
If that ego disappears, there's nothing else in the world. Devotee, what about devils? <laughs> he really wants to know about it. Ramana's not going to play this game, though. <clears throat> Bhagavan says, it's the same thing with regard to them. If there are devatas, gods in the world, devils are also there. If you're in existence, everything else is in existence. If you are not in existence, nothing else is. If you examine yourself, everything will be found in yourself only. Because he's saying, look, why are you worrying about all these creatures and other planes and all that? N know yourself. First discover who you are, and then see what, what exists. But first, you don't even know who you are. So why are you speculating about beings that you'll never see or exist in some subtle realm? Find out who you are. This is what Ramana would teach. Um, <clears throat> devotee, he's not, he's not convinced yet. It is said that when a man dies, he goes to the world of Yama, the lord of death, Yama, uh, with a yatan body after crossing the horrid river Vaitarani. That's like the river Styx, the river that separates you from hell and that the messengers of death create untold miseries to his body. Is it a fact that there's a world of Yama? <laughs> you can feel for him, though, you know? Bhagwan smilingly says, Aha! If there's a heaven, there's also a hell. All these exist only if you exist, otherwise not. First tell me, are you in existence or not? So first, know yourself. We shall then consider the question of the existence of hell. <clears throat> so Ramana's playing a game with him, isn't he? He's refusing to uh, answer that. And now comes something uh, remarkable. The devotee says, basically to Ramana, says, stop doing that. <laughs> he says, the devotee says, there it is. Bhagavan is using his brahmastram, his brahmastram, which is his divine weapon. What can I say now? <laughs> he's, saying, he's, he's throwing his Vedanta at me. What can I say? And, you know, Suri Nagama noted this down, was watching this whole thing, so she, and she understood what was happening. And what Bhagwan's reaction is magnificent. He goes, all right, I won't use it. <laughs> you may ask whatever you like. She says, like, okay, I'll get off it. I'll answer your questions. I ask again. I find this one of the most charming moments, uh, just wonderful. So the devotee says, what exactly is meant by a yatan body? And Bhagwan says, when we're asleep, this body lies inert. We have dreams. These dreams we, in these dreams, we experience happiness sometimes and troubles at other times. When the body is asleep, who is it who experiences all these? It must be admitted that it is the mind. The mind is called sukshma, subtle, sukshma, 
materials, the subtle body. Or yatan body. So saying the subtle body is this yatan body. <clears throat> After all, it is only the body that dies when a person dies. In other words, this subtle body, the mind, goes on after the death of the, of the physical body. Devotee. So the yatan body means it is only the mind. And Bhagavan says, yes. Otherwise, what else uh, can there be that troubles the body other than the mind? So saying, Bhagavan went silent. Is that good or what? So everything is about the mind, our sufferings, our joys, everything. If we can understand the mind, know how it works, and move the mind in the right direction, then we can have peace, we can have happiness. But because our minds run amok, according to tendencies and urges and movements and desires that we haven't understood or controlled, we, we're plunged into misery. So I found that that one moment, come on, Bhagwan, get off it. Don't give me your Vedanta right now. And Bhagwan says, okay, okay. <clears throat> Another one. Yesterday, a newly arrived youth, well, this is, I can tell you, 26 January 1946, this was. <clears throat> Where were you then? Uh, yesterday, a newly arrived youth from South India told Bhagavan about the vagaries of his senses, to which Bhagavan said, all that's due to the mind. Said it right. Uh, that is all right, Swami, but however much I try to reduce this anger, it comes on again and again. What shall I do, said the poor boy. He's tormented by anger. One thing is true, that all of us, if we don't do some meditation, spiritual work, we're tormented by anger, or we're tormented by worry, or we're tormented by grief and, and, and depression, <coughs> or we're tormented by desire. One way or another, our minds torment us. <clears throat> so he says, what can I do? Ramana says, oh, is that so? Then get angry with that anger. It will be all right, said Bhagwan. Get angry at the anger. All the people in the hall burst out laughing because it was disgust in front of people. <clears throat> a person, and then she writes, Suri Nagaman, a person who gets angry with everything in the world, if only he introspects and inquires why does not get angry with his anger itself, Will he not really overcome all anger, she asks. She's writing her breath at that. <clears throat> and then she says, two or three years back, a devotee who could freely approach Bhagavan came and told him five or six times that somebody had been abusing him. So first thing, that, uh, she says, a devotee who could freely approach Bhagavan. That's interesting because uh, a great being like Bhagavan, even though he was the most gentle and loving of people, would scare people because there was so much light, so much luminosity, so much shakti, so much presence that people were afraid to talk to him. But some devotees could go up and talk to him very easily. 
So this is one devotee who could talk to him. And we'll see later that children could talk to him sometimes. <clears throat> when I met Baba, it was very hard for me to talk to him. Well, I could talk to him, but I, I sort of gurgled like a six-month-old child, like, that was basically my conversation with him. I did not give him any hermeneutics. <laughs> I can tell you that. <clears throat> so, um, so he said five or six times somebody had been abusing him. Now she's telling the story. Bhagwan listened but said nothing. As there was no response from Bhagwan, in spite of repeated and varied complaints in a number of ways, the devotee could not contain himself any longer and said, when I'm abused so much unnecessarily, I also get angry. However much I try to restrain my anger, I'm not able to do so. What shall I do? Bhagwan laughingly said, what should you do? You too should join him and abuse yourself. <laughs> that will be all right. I think I might try that myself. <laughs> All laughed. That devotee, unable to understand anything, said, that's very good, should I abuse myself? Ramana, very, yes indeed. <clears throat> what they're abusing is your body, isn't it? What greater enemy is there than this body, which is the abode of anger and similar feelings? It is necessary that we ourselves should hate it. <laughs> Instead of that, when we're unguarded, if anybody abuses us, we should know that they're waking us up. <laughs> we should realize, at least then, and join them in abusing this body and crying it down. <clears throat> what is the use of counter-abuse? What is the use of yelling at them? Those who abuse us that way should be looked upon as our friends. This is very much like uh, Upasani Maharaj said, those who abuse you are, are really your friends because they bring up your tendency so that you can get rid of it. That's a big, that's a very, that, that's a mind bender, isn't it? Giving another perspective. It's good for us to, uh, to be among such people. If you're among people who praise you all the time, you get deceived, said Bhagwan. <laughs> and then she goes on. It's a, very interesting. In June 1924, thieves entered the ashram and not only belabored the devotees, but also beat Bhagwan on his thigh. Subsequently, while relating amongst themselves the thrashing they'd received, the devotees said, bad fellows, they even beat Bhagwan. Bhagwan is reported to have said, oh, you all worship me with flowers and they worship me with a stick. That is also a form of worship. If I accept yours, should I not also accept theirs? There's food for much thought in that, isn't it? Great story. <clears throat> okay. Uh, well, I have one serious uh, teachingly one on Ramana's method and then a, an adorable personal one. But perhaps I don't have time for it. Are we, are we doing it? Sure, I do. Okay. This is where I ask for permission to go on. Okay, this is, this is from another source about the practice of self inquiry. Uh, question You say one can realize the self by a search for it. What is the character of the search? 
<coughs> Ramana says, you are the mind or think that you are the mind. The mind is nothing but thoughts. Now behind every particular thought, there is the general thought, which is the I. He often said the I thought is the first thought. I'm going to say that. That is yourself. Let us call this I the first thought. Stick to this I thought and question it to find out what it is. Then this question takes strong hold. When this question takes strong hold on you, you cannot think of other thoughts. So just hold on to the thought I. I, I am. That essentially is what his technique was. Uh, it's usually misunderstood. You think what, you just hold on to the I thought, and then you inquire, what is this? And then you let the experience show itself. The words only lead you to that, and then you let the experience show. Question, when I do this and cling to myself, that is the I thought, other thoughts come and go. But I say to myself, who am I? And there's no answer forthcoming. <clears throat> to be in this condition is the practice, is it so? And Ramana says, this is the mistake that people make. <clears throat> what happens when you make a serious quest for the self is that the I thought disappears and something else from the depths takes hold of you. And that is not the I which commenced the quest. So you see, I would, I would edit Brahmana here. He's saying something from the depth, you, you expect an explosion to come up. But if you just focus on the I thought, and then just let that, the experience that that points to manifest. It doesn't have to be an explosion of something, dramatic explosion, but it's just the feeling sense of yourself. Let that be there. Question, what is this something else? Ramana, that is the real self. The import of I. It is not the ego, it is the supreme being itself. Question, but you've often said that one must reject other thoughts when one begins the quest. <clears throat> but the thoughts are endless. Ramana is actually saying, look to... Look to the essence and not to thoughts. Let thoughts go and focus on the I thought. <clears throat> if one thought is rejected, another comes and there seems to be no end at all. Ramana. I do not say that you must go on rejecting thoughts. Cling to yourself. That is to the I thought. When your interest keeps you to that single idea, other thoughts will automatically get rejected and they will vanish. So just hold on to that. Don't worry about the thoughts. Hold on to the sense of self. The I thought, I. Go from what the thought of I to the feeling of I. This is the same method that Nisargata Maharaj taught, really. Question, and no rejection of thoughts? And so rejection of thoughts is not necessary? Ramana, no. It may be necessary for a time or for some. You fancy that there's no end 
When one goes on rejecting every thought, when it rises, it's not true, there is an end. If you're vigilant and make a stern effort to reject every thought, when it arises, you'll soon find that you're going deeper and deeper into your own self. At that level, it is not necessary to make an effort to reject thoughts. Question, then it's possible to be without effort, without strain? Ramana, not only that, it is impossible for you to make an effort beyond a certain extent. <laughs> you can't, it's a symbol of Bhagwan Nityananda that effortlessly poised on the self. Question, I want to be further enlightened. Should I try to make no effort at all? The other way, Sri Ramana, now it is impossible for you to be without effort. A lot of the modern uh, Advaitins say, uh, you know, all effort is useless, don't make effort, which is ridiculous because they make effort to get their lunch. They make effort for everything, but only in the spiritual realm they're not going to make effort. That's ridiculous. It says, it's impossible for you to be without effort. When you go deeper, it is impossible for you to make any effort. So now you have to make effort. And when you get there, then you, can't, then you won't make effort. And the mind becomes introverted through inquiry into the source of aham vritti, the I thought, the aham vritti. Uh, the vasanas become extinct. The tendencies become extinct, quiet. The light of the self falls on the vasanas and produces the phenomenon of reflection we call the mind. Thus, when the vasanas become extinct, the mind also disappears. The mind's nothing but this collection of tendencies and history. And, you know. <clears throat> the mind also becomes, disappears, being absorbed into the light of the one reality, the heart. The mind recedes into the heart, into consciousness itself. This is the sum and substance of all that an aspirant needs to know. What is imperatively required of him is an earnest and one-pointed inquiry into the source of the aham vritti, the I-thought. An earnest investigation of the I-thought. And everyone has to do that for themselves. They have to turn within and say, what is this I that I always refer to? And feel that and hold that I-thought and inquire into it, go deeper into it. Question, how should a beginner start this practice? Ramana, the mind will subside only by means of the inquiry, who am I? The thought, who am I, destroying all other thoughts will itself finally be destroyed like the stick used for stirring the funeral pyre. You're stirring the funeral pyre and eventually you throw the stick into the fire too. So this, this who am I will be thrown into the fire. <clears throat> if other thoughts rise, one should, without attempting to complete them, inquire to whom do they arise? What does it matter however many thoughts arise? At the very moment that each thought arises, if one vigilantly inquires to whom does this arise, it will be known to me. It arises to me. <clears throat> if one then inquires, who am I? The mind will turn back to its source, the self. And the thought which has risen will also subside. By repeatedly practicing thus, the power of the mind to abide in its source 
increases. The mind learns to stay in the self by this method. We'll meditate on that in a bit. I want to read you one more charming little story, and then we can do that meditation. You ready? This is much lighter. <clears throat> this is Suri Nagama writing to her brother on the 28th of May, 1946. She says, our brother's children, Swarna and Vidya, uh, wanted to see, they, they were at the ashram, the other brother, um, wanted to see some temples in the area, Anamalai Temple, uh, Durgamba Temple, and others. So he set out yesterday morning after obtaining Bhagwan's permission. That they, the devotees used to go around the, the mountain, production of the mountain. It was like a holy pilgrim. They'd walk around and take a while, a couple hours. Um, so they went around the mountain and went and looked at these temples. As the summer had already set in, I was afraid these young children of 10 and 12 years might not be able to walk in the hot sun and so engaged a bullock cart. <clears throat> the cart, other children of the same age and even younger ones also started out with us. We went round the hill by way of Pradakshina, saw all the places of interest and returned by about 11.30. We must have had an early start. As we came into the hall at 3 p.m., Bhagwan inquired of me, at what time did you come back? When I said it was 11.30, Bhagwan asked, were these children able to walk the distance? I told him we went round in a bullock cart. Bhagwan jocularly said, oh, I see, you went in a cart. Who gets the punya? The, the merit, who gets the religious merit, the good karma. Uh, the cart or the bullock or the children? <laughs> I could not give a reply. Bhagwan said, this body itself is a cart. The other cart uh, for this cart, another cart for this cart, a bullock cart to pull this cart. So a cart goes in a cart. <clears throat> for work done like this, going around the hill, people say, we've done it. Everything is like that. People come by train from Madras and say, we have come. <clears throat> it's the same thing with the body. For the self, the body is a cart. What would we say? Not a cart. A car. Yeah. Uh, the legs do the work of walking, and people say, I walked, I came. Where does the self go? The self does not do anything, but appropriates to itself all these actions. So saying, he inquired, did they walk at least some distance? <laughs> After the philosophy. <laughs> I said that they walked to the Gotama ashram uh, doing bhajans, uh, but could not walk further because of the hot sun. <clears throat> Bhagwan said, that is something. They walked at least some distance. <laughs> and then she writes to her brother, you know, Vidya is a mischievous child. Ever since she came, she's been asking a lot of questions about Bhagwan. I don't know if she was a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. Won't Bhagwan, Bhagwan Tata, grandfather, come anywhere? Why not? He always lies on his couch. <laughs> not satisfied with my replies, on the 24th, she herself asked Bhagwan why he did not go anywhere. 
as you're aware, Bhagwan's very pleased with the words of little children. You know, they ask so naively, cute. <clears throat> Looking at her affectionately, he said, you want to take me to your place? That is your idea, isn't it? That is all very well. But if I go anywhere, all these people will also come with me. And on the way, ever so many more people will invite me to their places. If I don't go, will they agree with that? No, they will take me there bodily. <laughs> From there, more people will start. Can you take them all with you? Not on those people. If I move out, the whole of Arunachala itself may start. <laughs> How can you take it away? See, I've been kept in this jail. <laughs> Even if you take me away, someone will catch me on the way and again put me in some other jail. <laughs> he always discusses it. He actually thinks of it like that. What can I do? How can I come? Tell me. Will all these people let me go? What do you say? Bidya could not reply. She was, she was speechless. From that time onwards, he used to tell people, this child is inviting me to her place. Yesterday, having heard that the two children were leaving for their native place that day, and seeing Vidya standing near the doorway, Bhagwan, while going out at 9.45 a.m., caught hold of her hand and said, child, will you take me with you? Tie me up firmly and put me in a cart and take me away. <laughs> Before leaving, Vidya took Bhagwan's photos to him and showed them. <clears throat> as soon as he saw the photos, Bhagwan said, so you're taking me away. Tie me up firmly and throw me in the cart. <laughs> Everyone present felt happy. And Vidya, in her great joy, frolicking, began saying, yes, I'm taking Bhagwan Tatataya. Grandfather, Bhagwan, grandfather. Huh? Nice? There you go. So that's uh, Nagama, Suri Nagama. Charming, no? All right, we'll meditate for 10 minutes and let's, uh, let's do exactly what Bhagwan Ramana. We didn't show a picture of Suri Nagama, did we? I forgot that. Do we have it? Yeah. Oh, let's put it up. Oh, you've turned it off? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll fill up the time. I'll tell you a little joke. You heard about the dyslexic seeker of God? Dyslexic. So, so let's, let's, uh, let's do this. Let's, let's meditate. And you always say, I. And focus on I. I am. Take the word I or I am. And say that to yourself in your inner space and see where it's pointing, where it refers. Does it refer to the point inside you that it refers to? And hold on to that point and let that place inside you reveal itself. No, he can't get it? Okay, go ahead. There she is. So, Nagama. So hold on to that I am, and we'll meditate for 10 minutes on the self. And Ramana, Ramana felt that nothing could be simpler and more direct than the path that he taught. 
Um, and yet, because of people's minds are so confused and so filled with stuff, it was very hard for him to get it across. And so he often was frustrated and would have to talk about it endlessly. But the essence is simply to hold on to the I thought and then investigate from there. This is a direct route to the self. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satunat Maharaj Ki Jai.